Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. Uh, hope everybody's doing okay and survived the woo, the big snowstorm we had this week. Wow. I was uh, down in Milwaukee on Thursday working in our Milwaukee office that John and I have. And uh, yeah, the snow hit pretty hard and kind of suddenly down there. And of course, I drove back to Sheboygan uh, later in the afternoon. And yeah, there were several cars in the ditch. And interestingly, the thing that was most problematic or so it seemed was the uh, the local traffic here in Sheboygan. Um, the roads were so quickly snow covered that there were cars just unable to gain traction going up hills and crashing into uh you know islands and things like that that's yeah, pretty wild so i hope everybody is safe and uh, once again warm i know it's very very cold out but grab yourself a cup of coffee and pull up a seat and enjoy the ride i want to start off by talking about representative marjorie taylor green who um as you all know has recently been stripped of her committee assignments. She is a uh, representative in the U.S. House of Representatives. And uh, I have some views on this, and uh, you might be surprised to hear what they are. Um, I'm concerned. I'm concerned that uh, this we're getting wrapped up in what feels to me like a form of censorship or, um, you know, quelling squelching, that's the right word, squelching uh, people's opinions because they are different. And, you know, let's just peel back the layers here and talk for a moment about what is important uh, to our democracy in terms of a representative democracy. We elect people to represent us citizens in Congress and in the Senate. And, of course, we know they have those two houses have uh, respective functions and uh, some things are important for the house others are important for the senate but by and large they both represent an elected body of officials that the people by virtue of the democratic voting process have uh, chosen to represent them now of course it's not a perfect system and we all know the frustration that we feel if uh, someone who is in elected office represents you and that person doesn't have your views, that's always been a feature of our democracy. Um, the fact that you can vote for somebody else and if that person doesn't win, then the person that ran against your candidate is now your representative and will represent uh, you as a person. And that's what people run on. They run on ideals, on party affiliation, on uh, notions that they believe can improve uh, the quality of life for people, advancing certain, um, I, you know, idealistic views of how things should work. But when it really comes down to it, the person who has been elected is then given the authority to act um, any way that they choose. And that's why we have elections. Uh, that's what we're analyzing when we uh, cast the vote is... Is this person going to uh, fairly represent what I believe uh, is right versus wrong and how to do things? And, and is this a qualified person and so forth? Um, now, you know, it's complicated here by the um, QAnon conspiracy theories and things like that, that uh, Representative Green did 
at one point espouse and has recently, you know, whether we believe it or not, I don't know, but uh, walk and, walked back from. And actually, you know, just bear in mind, a lot of people in this country up until Inauguration Day believed that something else was going to happen. And we see things in the news where people say, oh, I was duped. I feel foolish. I feel like uh, I was misled. And then we, we say, oh, thank you for saying that. You know, the sentiment is, oh, okay, good. Good for you. You finally came out of the, the fog that had you believing something that really doesn't make sense. And we say, you know, okay, good. Well, you know, welcome back to reality. And, you know, Rep Marjorie Green has been saying the right things like, okay, I know I said something about the Pentagon plane being, uh, you know, not there, but I do. Now I do believe that it happened and she's examining things uh, correctly. And yes, you know, she said some very horrible things on, on, uh, you know, social media and she is a, an ongoing sort of, uh, you know, Trump defender. But here's the point. Uh, stripping somebody of their House committee assignments is just an unusual and, I think, ineffective way of dealing with the problem. And if the problem is that somebody is not trustworthy or somebody is not uh, representative of American ideals, whatever that means, it's supposed to be the voters that take action. If it's to an extreme, then yes, a, a a congressperson can be removed from office. They can be subject to um, that type of action. But this whole notion of stripping of her her, her committee assignments to me uh, sounds like you know you're not allowed to participate in part of your job. Now, people are acting like this was, you know, a private company's board of directors that, you know, uh, agreed to have her on a board. And then they're like, okay, well, now we don't like you, so you can't be on the board anymore. And a lot of the commentary I've seen on the media has been focused on, you know, the Democrats really need to do what they, uh, they got to put their money where their mouth is. They can't stand hypocrisy. They need to stand up for integrity, etc. Okay, fine. But this is not a private company's board of directors. This is the U.S. government. And this is, you know, the House of Representatives didn't nominate themselves. Um, true, they go through a process that isn't connected to the people about who is on which committees. But to exclude somebody from participating in any of the committee work that Congress does to me, makes no sense. And think about it this way. Yeah, you've, you've probably been to a meeting for a group that you're in. It could be, you know, a community organization. It could be your church. It could be, you know, a club, private club that you're part of, or maybe it's 4-H or Boy Scouts or whatever. And we've all been in that situation where somebody is saying something that you disagree with. And, and what do you do? You debate it, you hash it out, you you know you agree to disagree, but you respect other people's opinions for having them, and you can think that they're ludicrous and silly and everything else, but uh, you don't just say, "Hey, your your views are intolerable." I mean, if it was something that was illegal and someone was promoting, uh, you know, active violence and doing something along those lines, sure, there'd be a different type of response, but generally. 
What we believe in, in this country, is the free and fair discourse of competing ideas. And they could be ludicrously wrong. They could be offensive. They can be all over the map. But the way that these things sort themselves out is that when someone's participating on a, in a committee, you know, uh, as part of their congressional duties, uh, you know, perhaps that person has less credibility in the body. Perhaps that person's uh, judgment is questioned by the others that are part of that same committee. And, and frankly, that's more effective than just telling somebody you're not allowed to show up anymore. Uh, yeah, you're still a congressperson, but you can't do some of the work that you've been elected to do. You see what I'm saying? So I'm just, I'm worrying. It's smacks of censorship. It's smacks of, uh, you know, trying to tell, trying to send a message that a controversial opinion is not going to be accepted. And that's dangerous because it's, it's ill-advised and it's also not what our country is all about. You know, um, we have always said we defend people's right to express an opinion, no matter how offensive it is. Um, you know, many of the organizations that uh, fight for freedom of speech and expression, like the ACLU, for example, have always said, hey, you know, if somebody has an offensive point of view, I will defend that person's right to express that point of view, even if I wholeheartedly disagree with it. That's the essence of, again, representative democracy. That's that's the essence of the freedoms that we all have. So to tell someone that they're going to be ejected from um, committee work, I think is counterproductive. And really, <laughs> I don't like the precedent if it's something that we are going to start doing because when people disagree, you can't just say, you know, get out of the room. It doesn't make sense to me. So we'll, we'll see how this pans out, but um, I was just a little surprised that there was such a uh, rallying around the idea of uh, removing her from her committees. Anyway, it's time for a break, so we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back, friends. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy brewing over who gets the COVID vaccine, Um not so much in terms of who has medical need for it or priority. That's a separate set of controversy that I'm not referring to. But specifically, there has been outcry on both the state and national level about vaccinating uh, prisoners. And on our state level, we've heard some comments from our uh, representatives in the state assembly uh, in particular that it is... Uh, untenable and unconscionable to administer vaccine a vaccine to save the life potentially of a convicted murderer who's 35 years old when uh, there are people that are good solid uh, non-criminal citizens that are having to wait and you know that argument has some uh, face value appeal in the sense that it's a simple, uh, you know, crying out, hey, the criminals don't deserve any consideration, etc., etc. All right, well, we got to peel that back quite a bit because, first of all, the Department of Corrections, or for that matter, the Bureau of Prisons on the federal level, are tasked with 
a, a very specific statutory duty to protect the safety of people within their control. And think about it. Uh, when somebody is confined and their liberty is stripped away, the essence of what's going on here is that they are being, you know, more or less taken care of. In our country, and this has been our philosophy for many, many years, I can't say it's always been our philosophy, but after the quote-unquote, you know, corrections revolution that occurred around the turn of the century where we started to have more um, emphasis on providing quote-unquote humane treatment to people who are confined uh, because the punishment, so to speak, is the lack of freedom because we value freedom so greatly in our country. And it's also been shown through many, many, many studies as well as philosophical, uh, you know, conjecture that people who are treated humanely in these situations uh, tend to be less uh, violent. They, they're easier to manage. Uh, many of these people need to build job skills, social skills, and other things that will presumably help them when they are reintroduced into the community. So a rehabilitative approach. Now you might say, okay, well, what about that convicted murderer who's never going to get out? Well, imagine then if we had some sort of, you know, tiered system within the prison that would say, okay, you, Mr. Convicted Murderer, are not going to get the vaccine, but your cellmate, who will be released in 10 years and eventually go back to a civilian life, that person will get the vaccine. And, you know, it, the problem is with confined settings like this, we've already seen how rapidly and uncontrollably the virus can expand and, and sweep through jails, prisons. It's happened pretty much everywhere that there is a uh, confinement scenario. And here's the most important thing. When we say these people don't deserve, you know, quote, the medical treatment that the, you know, the Bureau of Prisons is responsible for providing them by law, by law, um, we have to remember that, hey, what, there are frontline workers, so to speak, that have direct contact with these people. They're in a prison that is run by prison guards and prison officials, including medical personnel. And you know something else? I have to go into the prisons and the jails uh, on a regular, almost daily basis to meet with people who need representation that they're entitled to under the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution. Many of these people aren't convicted of anything yet. Not some, certainly not in the prisons necessarily, but in the jails. And if we're looking at protecting or, or stopping the spread, that is one of the places you really have to focus on because it's so easily and uh, you know uncontrollably spread in those types of situations. So in a way, what we'd be saying is, you know, let's not vaccinate the the criminals, we're saying who cares about the the prison guards and the people you know that have not done anything wrong, that are employed by our government to do the very difficult job of running a prison. And let's forget about the safety of the judge that has to preside over a hearing where, you know, unvaccinated people will be coming into courtrooms. Uh, and the prosecutor, let's forget about their safety because 
you know, all because somebody likes the idea of singling out somebody based on their conviction and treating them as if they are not worthy of basic health care. Now, I get it that in terms of priority, there are many difficult issues that we have been facing. We've seen them already. Is it arbitrary to say, okay, if you're over 70, you know, you're, you're, you're in. If you're over 65, you got to wait a little bit. If you're uh, what might be considered a healthcare worker, even tangentially, you know, what about a pharmacist? Is that somebody who, you know, needs to have uh, priority over another? Hey, there's no easy answer to any of these things. And we're hopefully, you know, working on getting everybody vaccinated. But of course, we want to do it smartly. That's the whole point. This is being done hopefully in such a way that it has a beneficial impact on everybody. So the ones that are most at risk, not only because of age, infirmity, or a pre-existing medical condition or any of those things, uh, but also those that need to be available in order to provide ongoing medical care. And most importantly, populations of people who, if vaccinated and protected against the virus, will um, be a population of people that we don't need to worry about spreading it further to other people. There's been a suggestion that uh, those participants in the criminal justice system should be of a higher priority. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I can tell you that out of necessity, um, lawyers, judges, even though most counties are not doing jury trials yet, some are. Um, I have a trial next week in Kenosha. It's going to proceed just as if there was no COVID, except people will wear masks and they will try to socially distance and so forth. But, um, you know, we have different rules in different counties. And there's always been this issue of uh, some judges will require a personal appearance, even if it's a fairly mundane matter. So, yeah, you know, I'm... Unfortunately, one of those people that has to travel all over the state, enter different jails and prisons and facilities, and, you know, I'm a potential super spreader, but I have to do my job. And when the judge tells me I got to be at a certain place, I can't, I can't say no. (laughs) It's part of the job. So, and I know prosecutors feel the same way. Yes, they can uh, call in or zoom in for some hearings, but there are those that require the physical presence of people. And I'm sure you can all imagine there's a a wide variety of things where that is important. Um, Let's not forget that that's actually something else that's part of the Constitution. The confrontation clause that one has the right to confront an accuser. And that means more than just being able to cross-examine the person. It traditionally means that somebody who is going to testify and provide evidence against somebody else is required to, you know, physically, visibly raise their right hand, take an oath to tell the truth, uh, and swear to what they are saying. And that has to be done, you know, so that everyone can see. That's part of the process. And it's part of also how we somewhat regulate um the the seeking the truth you know in any kind of proceeding is that it's not just as simple as okay you're going to phone in and then just say something the the process of appearing in court 
taking that step of swearing that it's the truth in front of everybody and then being subject to cross-examination, testing the truth. And then we've always believed maybe it's a little, um, I don't know, arcane to keep believing this, but yes, we do believe in our criminal justice system that watching the person's reactions to questions is helpful in finding the truth. That may bother some people because it's very imprecise, but it is part of our process. So, to some extent, there are ongoing concerns about how can we have a justice system that can operate within the within the parameters that we are setting up for safe functioning. Goes back to my point: those that participate directly in that process are at risk of not only getting the virus but spreading it to other people that they are also required to be physically present around time for another break but we'll be right back after these messages so in recent days maybe um you know week and a half two weeks heading into uh the early days of the biden administration we've seen a number of executive a large number actually of a number of executive orders that have um, by some estimations um reversed many of the trump era Policies. We're already using the term Trump era. I mean, uh, it's kind of like it was a distant past, but we all know that it isn't. Um, and there's been some criticism of that part of the process. And I just wanted to touch briefly on how that all works and, and what an executive order actually signifies. In many ways, um, an executive order can be something that is, number one, vulnerable to reversal, as in the change of an administration, like we just saw. And that's supposed to provide an incentive for a president to allow Congress to do its work. But of course, we do allow for executive orders that can establish policy uh, as it relates to rulemaking, um, as it relates to what the government's quote-unquote position will be on a particular matter. And some of these executive orders end up being somewhat, you know, ceremonial in the sense that, you know, the president recognizes the Wonder Bread Company for making such wonderful Wonder Bread. You know, thank you very much. Here's your, uh, you know, plaque or something like that. That's, you know, a lot of executive orders are along those lines. But uh, again, the, the utility of an executive order is supposed to come into play, theoretically, anyway, when there's something that uh, the president needs or wants to do, and essentially it's appropriate to bypass the Congress and the Senate of the normal bill-making process. And, you know, presidents cannot establish, you know, law necessarily by executive order. They cannot do something that is properly within the realm of Congress, such as, you know, creating a law. No, these are things that are either in the regulatory realm or are encouragements. You know, <laughs> it's our policy that we will, you know, uh, be more conscientious about recycling. You know, some of them are, are along those lines. But but here's the point. The incentive for not relying too much on executive orders is that the very nature of what they are, which is theoretically temporary. And if you people that criticize the fact that President Biden is reversing 
the exe- the many executive orders that were issued by uh, President ex President Trump. Well, just remember when those executive orders were issued and signed, it was under the uh, with the limitations that they are somewhat temporary. They're dependent upon the existing administration and. Unfortunately, dependent upon politics, because that is how our country works. You know, I've said this many times, and, and uh, we may not like a particular thing in the way it works, but it, it, you have to live with the fact that there are certain aspects of the way our government works that we must uh, live with. Uh, and it may be who got elected and and how they believe in things. And the best example that we can have of this is the... You know, the controversy that swelled around President Obama's uh, nomination of Merrick Garland that was held up by the Senate, believing that since that administration had only 10 or 11 months left to go, that it was too close to an election and that uh, we really need to let the will of the people have a say in who the next president will be. And let's wait. Let's wait almost a year. Uh, before we continue with any sort of confirmation hearing. Then, of course, we know last year, with mere weeks left, um, the same body of people in the Senate said, oh, um, there's plenty of time left, and we need to hurry up and select somebody, in spite of the fact that they took precisely the opposite view four years earlier. Um, Okay, is that hypocritical? Yes. Is it surprising? No, because in both situations, the Senate was in control. And this is, (laughs) you know, when people don't understand how things like this work, you just have to remember one thing we all have to accept. One reason why the elections that just happened were so important is that when the Senate either gains control or maintains control or loses control, it, it has a tremendous impact on what can be done in the Senate. And if we have one of those situations like we do now, where the Senate, the House, and the Executive Office actually align in terms of, well, yes, political party, but also theoretically, you know, governance philosophy, um, they can get things done and not reach uh, roadblocks, filibuster, etc. One good thing, one very good thing that we've seen so far in this uh, new administration is that there's been there's already been more cooperation for, for seeing that things get done. Now, we all know that the funding for the coronavirus vaccine rollout and uh, stimulus checks and things like that have all been debated along party lines. But, uh, you know, the Senate, the you know, Senate minority has just recently agreed for the purposes of COVID funding and and the COVID relief package to um, allow a simple majority by uh, uh, invoking one particular procedural rule with the mind's eye that it will get passed. And that way, you know, if a particular Republican senator disagrees, they can kind of do so and yet uh, support the passage of the bill because they know it will it will go by a simple majority. You know, this is part of that realm of delicate politics that uh, one has to, when in office, and this is another, I guess, problem we have with our two-party system is that 
um, there's not only an expectation that you do what is in your estimation, your wisdom, your experience, your knowledge, and your research that produces a, a point of view that you also have an affiliation with a party. And the party has certain values that some might say, you know, make it so we're all sheep that if you're a representative or a senator in a party, you have to do what the party wants you to do. And I, I suppose that is true. But on the other hand, it does provide, you know, an organization and a way of, um, you, you know, unifying, solidifying platforms, uh, you know, planks on the platform. You know, this party stands for this and I'm with that party, you know. But uh, while we're on that subject, I think it's interesting, very interesting to debate the idea of have we run out of options when it comes to a viable third or fourth party system. And this is something that was heavily debated when the Constitution was being ratified or, or debated back in the days of our founding fathers is, you know, how robust of a competitive system do we want to encourage? And there's certainly no limitation on the number of parties, the number of candidates that can run. And, um, you know, it's basically... And we have had elections where there were, you know, four or five different parties that, you know, not in recent history, but, you know, 150 years ago and, and further back, yeah, we had elections where, you know, there were five different candidates that were all representing different perspectives. And that's back before it was Republican and Democrat. It was, you know, there was the Know Nothing Party and the Bull Moose Party and the you know, and so on and so on. The Tories, you know, um, <laughs> it's going way back. But, um, you know, the fact that we have a system that almost necessarily, in order to have an election uh, be more rep more closely affiliated with a majority vote, which we know that's not what drives the election, right? Because... People don't win elections by getting the majority vote. That doesn't. That isn't the way it works. That's why we have the electoral congre um, congress and uh, college. I'm sorry, electoral college. And you know, the basis behind that again is that we have to have uh, an evening of the voices across different states in our country, and that a more populous state that may be uh, much more aligned with a particular political party shouldn't have too much power over a state with smaller population and perhaps a different philosophy. So it's a way of kind of leveling the playing field. And it's, of course, it's sort of random and it's sort of uh, very unscientific, but it's probably the best that we can do for that purpose. Now, there's been an argument that by not having elections determined by the popular vote that we are um, discouraging independent parties to run for office. And I think there is some merit to that. But we'll talk about that more when we come back from the break, right after these messages. Welcome back. Before the break, we were talking about, um, philosophically, where do we want to go forward as a country and whether it's good or bad for a country to have more than just a two-party system. And I think on the one hand, it it sounds very appealing to allow for more than two simple perspectives because we all know that um, 
that's the formula for what happened in the Civil War. Um, you have one group of views, another group of views, and they are diametrically opposed to each other. And that's, again, a recipe for clashing over um, who has power, who has uh, the ability to control the other. At the same time, we have to kind of mathematically figure what the risk is if there are more than two parties. And we've seen this happen in many elections. For example, the election when Abraham Lincoln was elected, he did not have anywhere near the majority vote in the country. In fact, if you talk about the actual majority vote, Abraham Lincoln would have lost by a landslide. But because of the fact that during that election and several others that we've seen, the ticket was divided by more than two candidates. And, you know, you can't win an election if you get one third of the vote. Well, actually, you can. <laughs> That's part of the problem. OK. Um, and then it comes down to it, it becomes so much more imprecise. And there's a larger there's a greater risk that a larger number of people will be not represented by the person that they voted for. You see what I'm saying? What if we had 10 parties? Um, and again, you know how electoral votes are distributed based upon each state's particular vote. And, and remember, the majority does count for that state and how those electoral votes are basically cast. And we've seen what happens when um, there's a proposal that it not be cast according to the majority vote in that state. And that's another thing that people have criticized because it's also a bit imprecise. We have many states. Ours is one of them, Wisconsin, where we have very large blue areas that are um, population-wise in Milwaukee County and Dane County. And by and large, with a couple of minor exceptions, the rest of the state votes predominantly Republican. So we are a state that consists of, you know, it's a purple state, sure, but it's also based on, you know, a met, two major metropolitan areas that have a higher concentration of Democrats. And so the question is, what about Republicans that live in those districts? Are their votes being watered down? Of course they are. That's part of how this all works. Just like there are many Democrats that live in those deep red counties that probably feel like their votes don't get counted. But I'm, I'm walking through a scenario now. Let's imagine that there are 10 candidates, all of which are running for office, and they've all been certified. And, and the thing that the reason this doesn't happen more often, or really, I don't think we've ever seen 10 candidates, but the reason that the thing that discourages that is that um, most people, if you're running on a party that isn't a nationally recognized party with a long history, it's very difficult to gain any traction. And it's even more difficult now that we have some of the uh, limits on campaign spending, and we're all familiar with how the Citizens United case affects all of this. Election, after Citizens United, elections are determined more by who can raise the most money. And it basically gutted the protections that are designed to um, be part of campaign finance reform. But, you know, gets rid of it all. Yes, we still have campaign contribution limits from individuals, but, you know, businesses, big businesses with lots and lots and lots of money can put out their own ads 
uh, and can support a particular candidate, either by name or philosophy. And so, yes, I mean, that's another reason why we don't have 10 candidates running all at the same time is that it's it's not viable to create your own party in your living room and run for president and have any hope of winning. So what we see are people that, and I think President Trump is an excellent example of this, he wanted to run on a, a platform that probably had a great deal of appeal to some folks. Some of those people were Republicans, some were not. And there was basically a guess, I think, as to which party would be best to run on. And the traditionally Democratic uh, Donald Trump becomes a Republican. I mean, that's what happened. You know, he's in the past given tons of money to Democratic causes. He's he's funneled money to Hillary Clinton, as a matter of fact, prior to uh, running for president. But um, getting back to the point, what would happen? Let's say here in Wisconsin, we have 10 candidates. They're all running. And because of the way that elections work, someone could receive literally 11% of the vote and uh, win this state's electoral votes. And that could be something that happens all over the country. So someone who who receives, you know, no more than 11% of the popular vote could still make it to the presidency. Maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. But what we hope is that, um, and it's it's a very egalitarian notion that anyone can be president, right? I've said this before. That's one of the good things about the Trump administration is it shows us that you don't have to be a career politician in order to be president. And maybe that's a good thing for our kids when we say you can be president someday, you know? You spend, you know, as long as you work hard on it and you don't have to go through the traditional political route where you get in line for 20 years and and so on. Uh, President Obama was another good example because he had a very rapid rise. I mean, he was not in politics very long by the time he did get elected to president. But so, yes, there's this notion that, hey, you know, I can form a kitchen cabinet in my kitchen <laughs> and run for president and have a shot at winning if I can convince enough people nationwide that I'm doing the right thing. But but it doesn't work that way because I if I make up my own party, my credibility is not going to be where it needs to be. And I'm not going to draw the attention of all those major donors out there that uh, will support the, what's become a race for who can raise the most money. Um so, when we say, let's get rid of the Electoral College altogether, then we run into a, a completely different problem. And that would be that you can have a pocket. It, it, it really, you really run the risk of, let's say, a candidate that is extremely popular in one state. Everybody loves this person. And nobody else in the rest of the country has even heard of this person. And let's say California, which has a massive number of people in it. And the California votes overwhelmingly for a particular candidate. And then New York City, New York State, which also has a massive number of uh, popu- popular vote just by virtue of population. Let's say they get on board with this particular candidate. And then the entire rest of the country does not side with this person. On a, on a pure majority vote basis, we do have the risk of all of those states um, having no voice. 
And, and that's the theory behind the Electoral College. Now, is it perfect? Absolutely not. I mean, we see all kinds of problems with how it runs. And frankly, no one's come up with a better solution to address that very issue. And, and it goes back to... Um, I'm going to use the term uh, federalist, and I don't mean that in the context of like what we nowadays consider someone to be a quote-unquote federalist, but I'm referring to a um, view of a united republic, uh, that form of federalism. And what I mean by that is that we have incorporated not only um, in our founding documents in our and the structure of our government, but also some of the major, major reforms that we went through um, during the Reconstruction period to emphasize once and for all, we are one nation under God, indivisible. And in order to do that, there needs to be protections against certain parts of the country becoming the, the identity of the country. That's the point, okay? So, someone in Rhode Island uh, feels that they are part of the United States of America, just like someone in Hawaii or somebody in Nevada or Florida or pick your state anywhere is um, entitled to have not only the identity, but the production, you know, the overall um, protections of being a citizen of our great country. So I'd love to hear if somebody has a better idea. And I know there's there's things brewing out there with like how we could improve on the Electoral College, but it'd be interesting to see when you have to work through all these ramifications, um, what, what the true consequence would be. And we run the risk of actually watering down our votes even more if it came to a true majority. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Hope you've enjoyed Legal Defense with Kirk and John. By the way, John was not here. It wasn't that he was just being silent over in the corner. No, uh, he has other things that he has to attend to today. So you just had Kirk O'Bear today. So tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. It's been Legal Defense. Have a great weekend.